Grace and peace be yours from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text for this 20, rather the second Sunday after, in Advent, is from the 25th chapter of St. Matthew, these words, The kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish, and the foolish took their lamps but took no oil. This is our text, dear friends, in Christ. It hasn't been that many months now since soaring crude oil prices raised once again in the collective consciousness of Americans the memory of what things were like oil-wise not that many years ago in this country. Many will recall in the 1970s we saw not one but two crippling oil crises. One in 1973 when OPEC, the Association of, of Arab Oil Exporting Countries, when it turned off the spigot to U.S. supply in reaction to U.S. foreign relations uh, State Department maneuvers. Another crisis came because of the Iranian Revolution in 1979. But the net result of both, of each of these, gas lines, oil shortage. And not few in number were the, the auto casualties of the crisis, the cars left abandoned for a time at least, because whether waiting in line for gas at the pump or, or on the way to the fill station, they just ran out. Now, I don't think it would be fair to label foolish the one who ran out while he was stuck in the line, and I don't even think it would be right to call foolish the one who ran out on the way to the fill station to fill up. Foolish, though, is the one who simply neglected to regard the fact that the little needle on the dashboard was consistently heading toward that undeniable little letter E. And rightly, we think unwise one who prepares none for fires, for health crises, computer crashes, things that might happen, but they're not even guaranteed to happen to you. And yet still, rightly, we think people unwise who don't prepare for these, but, but it's nothing short of foolish. And Jesus means that in the strongest sense of the word. It's nothing short of foolish to prepare for something that most certainly will come to pass in time like his coming, his second coming. Ready or not, he will come. Now, if we consider today's parable and are comfortably quick to think of the foolish as, as others, others who in days of old were, were titled heathen in more politic, politically correct times, it's the unchurched, don't be so comfortable if that's where you'd comfortably and quickly place this label from the parable today, don't be so quick and comfortable to do so and think again. No doubt it's true. And Scripture's clear that everyone, all people, necessarily need be ready for Christ's second advent. But in this parable here, Jesus is not speaking of all people. How does he start the parable? He says the kingdom of heaven is like ten Ten maidens, but the, the kingdom of heaven. You see, here he's speaking of the church. Of all places and races and times, the church here in this parable, the church visible, made up of virgins, of maidens here, the designation that being of those who were customarily part of a, a, an Israelite wedding 
ceremony. Some wise, he said, some foolish. That's the way it is in the visible church. Looking in the church visible, those we can see, looking at them, you can't tell which one is which. You can't see into their lamps, into their hearts. Some possess the vital oil. Others have neglected it, thinking it unnecessary. Don't you be among those who bear the lamp only, but then senselessly neglect the necessary oil. Don't be among those who bear the name of Christian in name only, or perhaps take a measure of some security in in being outwardly and formerly in some formal way associated with with the church or by family relation only, but yet never receive that which fuels the, the flame of faith. Wouldn't that be like taking up a lamp but never putting oil in it? What good is that? Lamps are vessels made for burning. Of course, they're going to need oil to fuel the flame. Of course they will. Christian hearts, too, are baptismally made for believing. But they need that which fuels and and feeds the flame of faith. They need the oil, for without it the flame will die. So what's this oil? Where does one go about getting it then? Well, it's wise you ask now, because there may be no time later. The fuel that keeps Christian hearts of faith aflame, even in the coldest and the darkest of hours, is none other than Jesus Christ himself, all of him, all of him. What he from the Christmas manger to the cross, to the right hand of power, what he did in saving you, what he yet does in delivering that to you, what he will do at the end of time, all of it, all of him, he himself, with himself, fills the vessel of the human heart, a vessel that, because of our sin-born and fallen condition, a vessel that otherwise is cold and is, is dark, spiritually, Scripture says it's dead. And it's empty of of hope and of, of trust in him. He himself, he fills it. But you know, it's not by him bringing you and me across time and space to the source, the precious font, the source and spring of that oil, the cross upon which he died for you and me to pay the price for our sin. No, but rather it's by bringing... It's by bringing the priceless oil of Calvary's cross across the years and across the miles in the way that only he, the God of time and space, can, bringing it to you and me through the pipeline of his saving grace, namely his word, sacraments. It's said that some oil is, is a byproduct of a living being that's died. Crude oil, said to be such. Ancient lamp oil was drawn from a slain whale. Other oil, like olive oil, it's extracted from the ripened fruit, in this case the olive, as it's pressed and as it's compressed with intense force and pressure. But whichever image you choose, each oil image here well applies. For you, imagine the vast stores of oil aplenty that flow from Jesus' intense suffering, his bloody and painful death upon the cross. 
but now risen he himself through his word, this word you hear, read to you through the sacraments that you receive, through his word and sacraments, he comes to you. He, he brings, he bears himself to you to fill your lamp. Not as oil refined. He doesn't need any refining. He doesn't need any impurities taken out of him. You do. That's why he comes, to forgive you of those. You could say, though, he comes as oil reformulated because he's the God who has bonded himself from this day until the end of time, who's bonded himself to his word and to the water, bread, and wine of the the sacramental signs that he's given, dynamic signs that he's given. And he does it in order to come to you to forgive you of your impurities. That's why he comes. Word and sacraments that hear in and only in his church, he makes available to you. At what cost? Cost him everything. He spent himself, his life, so that you who have no money, with nothing with which to buy or barter for divine favor, so that as scripture says, you who have no money can come and you can buy without money and without price. You see, it's not what you put into it. It's not even what you put into him that fills your lamp. It's it's what he's put into you that keeps faith aflame. And there are no alternative fuels here. That's why his word and his sacraments are so precious, precious commodities to be used. To be used. That's why he went to such lengths and through, literally through such hell to provide them so that you'd have to use oil enough. Use them. Use them. Soon, Christmas gifts will be unwrapped, won't they? And the hard work of fathers and mothers and and grandparents and others, too, will be reformulated, if you will, into a wrapped gift that's placed underneath the Christmas tree, and, and it'll be torn open, perhaps by little excited hands torn open. As gift givers, you know, nothing makes the gift giver happier than to see the gift that he worked hard to supply being used, being played with, being enjoyed. It's the reason you gave it. Especially if it's a gift you can't do without. The gracious gifts of Christ you cannot do without. So with all diligence, for his sake, for your sake, with all diligence, use them. And take your children by the hand with tender care and teach them how and teach them where to get this oil. Because they need it too. And never stop teaching them. And you could do no higher honor to a father or a mother who's neglected this oil than lovingly and with all respect to encourage them in it, for they need it just the same. And people, people will mock you for taking such care to prepare. Pray for them. They need it too. For St. Paul says in our epistle reading, many say, come on, Relax. There's peace, there's security. But then suddenly, destruction will come. 
and the cry will sound, the bridegroom's here, and then it'll be too late to prepare. I think one of the worst things about being caught unprepared when any kind of calamity hits, I think it's the feeling of regret, of knowing you had the time and you had the means by which to be prepared But now that aching feeling of knowing that you're unprepared and it's too late. Terrible feeling. Maybe you know it. The feeling that that I should have and I could have, but I didn't. No doubt how the five foolish maidens felt when they were caught unprepared. It's no doubt how they would still still feel outside the the closed door to the wedding banquet, knowing well that the favorable time has run out. Behold, Scripture says, now is the favorable time. Behold, it says, now is the day of salvation. Friends, by Christ's faithful and abundant supply that he so faithfully delivers to you, Himself, redemption, forgiveness in and through his word and sacraments. You're prepared. You're prepared to stand as Christ made his bride stand righteous and spotless before him. That's how you're prepared. You're prepared and you'll be prepared with oil enough. You'll be prepared whether for earth's last day when suddenly he'll come in all his splendor wearing his crown, he'll come suddenly, or he'll be prepared for your last day. As sometimes suddenly he'll come then to close out, to close out for you all of your days here below. He does that sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes he does that, and it will be that way for some of us here. Perhaps it'll be with the doctor's word of an unexpected diagnosis and an alarmingly time-scarce prognosis. For some, it'll be when your loved one's phone rings in the middle of the night, like a thief in the night. When your loved one's phone rings and their reply to what's said is, but he seems so healthy. Or it'll be how tragic, because she was so young. We know not the day nor do we know the hour when he will come for you, for me, for all of us, but we know with certainty he will come. And you'll be ready. When he does, you'll be prepared. And so until he does, you can rest. You can rest, not negligently, no. But just like the five wise virgins did in the parable, They rested. They slept too. Remember this parable, this particular one? They slept as well, but theirs, mind you, was not the slumber of unsuspecting apathy and ignorance and negligence. No. They lived in the confidence that whenever the cry rang out and the bridegroom came, having been prepared by him, they knew that they were ready. Ever ready were they for when he came. Ready with oil enough and more. And when Christ comes for his bride in waiting, what a wedding day that day will be. Even better than today, though today is a good day. You know, 
It's not often that an object lesson of this magnitude, this obvious magnitude, helps a pastor preach his sermon for the day. <laughs> but as long as I've known John, and I've had the pleasure to know him, and as far, thus far as I've known Stephanie, they're help, awfully willing to help a guy out. So it's, it works well for the day. <laughs> but it is, a wedding that, it is a wedding that Jesus is describing here in the text. Clearly from the details... It's the case. It describes the customs of an ancient Israelite wedding. It's probably not accurate for me to say wedding day because Israelite marriages were far more drawn out than that. First came the betrothal. Wasn't a trial period. Wasn't probationary. It was as binding as marriage. But it was a preliminary period in which the bride and the groom, well bound together to each other by solemn oath, did not yet live face to face. I think one has well put it. We Christians live life here in betrothal, as it were, because we don't yet see our bridegroom face to face. Because you see, it was during that time of betrothal that the bridegroom, just like Christ does for us, his bride, the church, the bridegroom would give presents and gifts to his betrothed bride. And then it was that after a time, an indefinite time, she knew not always necessarily the day or the hour of his arrival. The bridegroom, though, would come from his or, or often his father's house, dressed in his glorious best in all his splendor, wearing the nuptial crown, and then he'd receive his bride to himself. He'd come accompanied by the, the whole host of his friends and his groomsmen, having reached the house of the bride, who with, with her bridesmaids anxiously waited for his arrival. Then he'd conduct them all, the whole company of them, back to his father's house. But then didn't Jesus say to you and me, in my father's house are many rooms? And I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come back, he said. And I'll come back again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then when, when the, the wedding party arrived at the house, the marriage banquet would begin. Hosted, of course, by the bridegroom and his father. And all the friends and neighbors would be invited in wedding garments. To all present and invited wedding garments, there would be provided. No charge would be provided. And the bridal couple would drink wine from a common cup to seal the marriage covenant and to signify the joy of a new life now together forever, face to face. But then again, didn't Jesus say on the night that he was betrayed, I shall not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Is it not a beautiful picture of Christ and his church? A beautiful picture marriage is. We saw that today. We heard it today. Beautiful picture marriage is not because of us, the office holders. We're imperfect. For we'll often cause the very tears that God has given us to one another to wipe away. We'll sometimes be the very ones to inflict the sorrow and the hurt and the pain. No, the picture is perfect because of him, Christ, the bridegroom. 
who's forgiven his bride of more than any groom or every, any bride ever could, more than any groom or every, ever, more than any groom or any bride ever will forgive each other, knowing how far they've been forgiven by Christ. Because of him, when our bridegroom Christ comes to us, the imperfect of today, we'll give way to the, to the tomorrow that St. John saw. In the Revelation when he said, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and then he will, God will wipe away every tear from her eye. And there shall be no more death or sorrow or crying, no more pain, for the former things they will have passed away. Our bridegroom soon will call us. And then, prepared by him, we'll see him, and with him we'll live forever, face to glorious face. In his name, amen.